have your Bibles, I'd like for you to join me in Nehemiah chapter 8. We're continuing our study through Nehemiah's personal memoir of an incredible time in history. God used him in an amazing and unique singular way, and thankfully he inspired Nehemiah to put down all of these words so that we could learn from what he went through. And we are at a turning point in Nehemiah's memoir. In fact, in chapter 8, though it is a lengthy chapter, I find that the application for us is incredibly relevant and amazingly simple. I realize that in the world in which we live, people have more, more than ever. All of us comprehend what it is to be okay. I don't mean that we always have what we want, but the fact is, by and large, we have more than what we even need. And one writer said this, the accumulation of material goods is at an all-time high, but so is the number of people who feel emptiness in their lives. More stuff, more emptiness. Gallup took a poll, he penned this, surveys have documented the movement of people who are searching for meaning in life with a new intensity. At the very time when the church of Jesus Christ can step up and announce that it has the answer in a personal redeemer named Jesus Christ, it has instead lost its voice. It doesn't communicate that the church has lost the answer. It does not mean that the church no longer has the truth, but rather has lost its voice in addressing the needs that actually exist. And in chapter 8 of Nehemiah, largely the show is over. Even as I referenced in our study last week, the credits have rolled. The wall has been completed. It is miraculous. It is amazing. The gates and the wall are now secure. Reconstruction largely is completed, but we enter into a moment where reinstruction is necessary. And the theme of chapter 8 is simply the exposition of Scripture. It's a turning point. It is a moment in time where these people will now become a people of the Word of God. You understand that a shift away from the Bible is disastrous. A shift away from the Scriptures is damning. And the materialism that exists in the world largely now exists within the church. And the promiscuity and the unfaithfulness that is mirrored in the world is now reflected even in the church. Matters of trust and faithlessness, worldly and material mentality has crept in and where we should be distinct and different, we are now largely like the world we are supposed to reach. It's not surprising to me then that when we arrive at Nehemiah chapter 8 and are reintroduced to this group of people who have spent a century apart from Jerusalem. We see people who are now a thousand years removed from the writing of the law of Moses. A hundred years now since they have been back in Jerusalem and they have observed the worship system. They are now ignorant of the things of God. Their mind is Babylonian. They are now removed from that culture and they must be re-instructed. And I'll begin reading here in verse 1. I'll direct your attention there. If you don't have your Bible, those verses are here on the screen. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. 
That just means everybody who was a part of this construction project gather in mass now, just down before the water gate on that street. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and the women and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema and Aniah and Urijah and Hilkiah and Maasiah. On his right hand and on his left, Padiah and Mishael and Malchiah and Hashem and Hashbadanah, Zechariah and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now, it may not seem like much, but those verses are an accounting of an incredible moment for the people who have gathered for the reconstruction of the walls at Jerusalem. We are going to see in this moment in time, them respond with great emotion to the truth of God as it is delivered. What they have just declared is their appetite for the word of God. They have just shown us their mindset and they have shown us their heart set. And remember this, God used these people to rebuild the wall and he will use the process of rebuilding the wall to build these people. And this is a moment where they learn greatly. I want you to note something in verse 1. Those three words, bring the book. Bring the book of the law of Moses, the people said. Shouldn't that in all reality be the desire of every listener? Bring the book. What we sense within them is they had a desire to return to God's word. The whole core of this passage is about the exposition of Scripture. And we sense within them an appetite to know what God said. Their desire predominantly, preeminently was, we are very certain that we're here according to God's will. And now we want to be very certain that we know what God wants. So, Nehemiah, Ezra, will you help us to get back to the foundational truths that God first spoke to the people so that we can honor God? Bring the book. All we want is what God says. We're not very concerned about your opinion. We are not really very concerned about your preferences. What we want is what God said. Every listener should desire to know what God said. I've been to a whole lot of church in my life. A whole lot of church. I've been to a whole lot of church today, just to be honest with you. And what I know is this. There are a lot of ministries that are built on fear. There are a lot that are built on guilt. There are a lot of ministries that are built on personality. There are a lot of ministries that are built on a whole lot of stuff other than simply what God communicated. 
And there are industries built around preferences. And there are mentalities that come out of those preferences. And if we move away from what God wants for us, it is disastrous. Largely, the church has lost its voice because we have lost our spiritual moorings. And we have lost our spiritual moorings because we have lost our scriptural grounding. We are concerned about so much stuff. We are concerned and busied about so many things that we get beyond what God simply communicated. And what we realize here is the people were desirous. Please don't tell us your opinion. Who cares what I have to say anyways? Please don't instill upon us merely your preferences. We want to know what God said. And then we get into verse 2. And Ezra, who at this point in time is an old man. This old prophet stands up and the Bible tells us in effect that he will read and he will simply apply the law of God. And we note this, it was six hours long. How many of you have ever sat through a sermon that was too long? I mean, a lot of dishonest people in here. I have definitely sat, I have preached sermons that were too long. And all God's people really... Don't agree with that. Now, there was too many amens. I can't get amens in this church to save my life except when I pick on myself. I've sat through sermons that were way too long. This is six hours. And I want you to get how structured the scene is. Everybody gathers together in the street before the water gate. Ezra, the old prophet, stands up in a pulpit made of wood, made for this purpose. He's above the people. He unrolls the law of God and how riveting this must have been. He begins reading and for six hours, he reads the Torah, the law of God. Which at this point in time, these people who have been in captivity and have developed a Babylonian mindset and are removed from the culture a thousand years earlier of Moses' day are now being introduced to the law of God. Now it makes sense to me that there are Levites standing on either side of Ezra and they are helping people understand because if you've ever read in the books of the law, there are a few things in there that make you scratch your head and you wonder what in the world is God saying there? And they were asking questions and the Levites were answering the questions and they were helping people to grasp what was going on. For six hours they listened standing up. And oh, by the way, this will continue every day for an entire week. But what I unearth in this is simply how hungry they were to hear the word of God. They were aware that they were in bondage because they had failed to meet God's expectations. And they didn't want to fail to meet God's expectation due to ignorance. And in order to avoid that, they desperately wanted to know, what does God want us to do? Please tell us what God wants. The Bible sets our view of God rightly. Notice this in verse 6. And Ezra Blessed the Lord, the great God. Now listen, he hasn't even started preaching yet. He blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, what's it say in that verse? But not just once, it's a double dipper. Amen, amen. Now we get that, right? We're a Baptist church, we understand amen, amen, amen. 
And there are some people in here who desperately want to cross out that next line. With lifting up their hands, they said, amen, amen. And then they bow their face to the ground. Now, I want you to grasp something about this moment. These people have seen God provide miraculously. They have watched him protect against Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. They have viewed Nehemiah live out the will of God for his life. They have asked Ezra, please step forward, Ezra, and tell us what God has said. And when he begins to read the law, and he says unto them, the Lord is a great God. This is not theatrical. This is not a show. This is their heart's response. They say, so be it. Yes, it is. And they lift up their hands in adoration and they bow their faces to the ground. Why? Because when you get a clear view of who God truly is, you can't look him in the eye. When you get a clear view of who God really is, you cannot help but live in adoration and in fear, not in the sense of quaking and trembling before a punitive tyrant, but fear and reverence before a great and mighty and holy God. You see, revival, like we'll see here in chapters 8 and 9, begins when our view of God is as it should be, and our appetite for God's Word is where it should be, and no theater, no show, a heart's response of humiliation in the sense of being humbled, and adoration in the sense of recognizing who God is. And oh, by the way, support for the public speaker. Not, that was supposed to be an amen. That's This whole thing was an amen. All right. I tried twice. We are clearly an unbiblical church. We don't amen twice. We don't lift hands. And I've yet to see people crawl on the ground with their faces to the floor. And we do vacuum regularly if you want to try it. Hunger for God's word leads to a return to biblical insight. You say, Pastor, this sounds somewhat like a lesson. It is. A return to biblical preeminence must necessitate that we understand what it is that God is teaching us because it is the onus of every believer to take the truth of God's word and apply it practically in their everyday life. You're in relationships and you're in workplaces and you're making decisions. And you not only need to know what God says, you need to know how to take what God says and make it practical in your everyday life. And in verse 7, we meet a whole lot of these guys who are going to help with that. Their names are hard to pronounce. We'll skip right over them to the second part of verse 7 where we read, All of these individuals caused the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. Now listen to verse 8. So they read... In the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Now you might underline that word understand because it's in there a couple of times. The listeners are being confronted with the law of God. And the Levites had the responsibility to first read distinctly what God had said. And then to give the sense of what they had just distinctly read. And then to make sure that the listeners understood what they were giving a sense of having distinctly read. It was everybody's responsibility to leave that setting on the street before the water gate with something practical. 
with some action steps to take. You are aware, are you not, that God's word, though it is certainly ancient by our standards, is relevant and is useful for all of us. Should impact our everyday world. I doubt that it was the most riveting listen. I was reading and studying and I came across a story of an 18th century English preacher. And if you've ever read old 18th century sermons, you're a weirdo, but you'll also know how hard it is. Not the most riveting listen, but this old 18th century preacher, just before he died, was visiting an old friend. And his old friend said to him, I can remember the text and something that you said in a sermon 65 years ago. Now that's stunning because none of you remember what I said last Sunday. But this guy remembered from 65 years earlier. Of course, his curiosity is piqued and he said, what do you remember me saying from 65 years ago? He said, I remember that in your preaching, you said that some people don't like listening to a sermon because of the delivery of the preacher. Makes some sense. He said, but then you went on to say this. Supposing you went to hear the will of one of your relatives read, and you were expecting something from him. You would hardly think of criticizing the manner in which the lawyer read the will. Rather, you would be all attention to hear whether anything was left to you, and if so, how much. He then applied it and said, that's how you should listen to the Bible being taught. We're nitpickers, aren't we? We've got to have it entertaining, and it's, it's got to be some kind of show so that it connects with us. And here is what we're driving our way back toward. We're pushing and cutting through all the culture of the day, and we're cutting through all of the messaging of the day, and we're working our way back to the simple foundational truth of the preeminence of God's Word and developing an appetite for it. Realizing that it is necessary, that life away from it is disastrous, that ministry away from it is damning, that it should affect every relationship and every decision and every conversation. We want to know what it is that it says. So when we listen to it, we should be like we're sitting there waiting to hear how much money we get. And I'll be honest, we wouldn't sit in the lawyer's office concerned about what color the carpet was. We wouldn't be worried about whether his tie knot was straight or not. We wouldn't care whether or not he had a beard. We wouldn't care. All we'd want to know is, what's in there for me? What are you going to say that applies to me? Do you get a sense of how lost we get in the whole realm of churchdom When in reality, if we could cut through all of that and get back to the preeminence of God's word and attend with an attentive ear, desperate to hear what exists in there for us, and it affects our every moment, we would get further down the line. You know what comes out of biblical insight? Biblical conviction. Now, that, that's something that we don't like to hear about. If, the, if this seems antiquated, how antiquated is a life of biblical conviction? By the time we arrive at verse 9, we read this. And Nehemiah, which is the Tirshatha, and Ezra, the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. 
For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Now you might be prone to think, I bet they were crying because of the intensity of the boredom. Literally bored to tears. But the fact is, they were crying because they, in ignorance, had become aware of what God's expectations were. And when they were made aware of what God's expectations were, they realized how woefully short they had come to meeting them. And rather than rejecting it, and rather than pushing against it, they were broken on the inside because they realized, I'm failing a holy God. And the reason for our bondage was the sin of our fathers and our own iniquity. And the reason that this city lay in ruins is because we've gotten away from our spiritual moorings and we've moved off of our scriptural foundation. And I'm now coming to grips with a lot of the shambles that I live in is because I haven't done what God said. And rather than push or reject, they're broken on the inside. They begin to mourn and weep. You realize a lot of us avoid the word of God because it convicts us and it challenges us. There are a lot of people who go to church every week, who read books, who attend Bible studies, who may even do conferences and seminars, and nothing ever changes. And what I am sensing in Nehemiah chapter 8 is, listen, these people have just been used to complete a mega construction project that was providentially gifted by God, and yet they are still broken when they come into the truth of what God had communicated for them. You know that the Bible, according to Hebrews 4, is a sword which is quick and powerful and sharp, right? That it delivers to us the truth and it divides asunder soul and spirit and it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The Bible is a penetrating sword and they could not stand the guilty verdict that it delivered on their life and they were broken on the inside. Nehemiah has to step up and basically say to them, guys, stop crying. This is not the moment for weeping. He says in verse 10, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send the portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now sometimes we'll read a phrase like that, hidden in a chapter like this, and you'll see people go, Oh, I know that. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. I've sung that. I've seen that on a coffee mug. The joy of the Lord is your strength. But few people realize that's in Nehemiah chapter 8. And what it's actually declaring is this. If you want to have a life of joy, note that it is the joy of the Lord which will be your strength. Which means you must live a life aware of what God says And aligned with the truth that it communicates. And if you will align your life with the truth that God communicates, you will find that you have joy. And for a whole lot of people, they think to themselves, joy and Christianity do not go hand in hand because they've gone to church with people like us. And I'll be honest with you, because a whole lot of guys have stood in places like this and mangled what God said. And they've tried to build little empires And they've tried to impose their preferences. And they've tried to communicate their opinions. And whenever you take somebody to an end that is not God's, it is empty. 
But if you will faithfully articulate what God has said and you will labor to make it palatable to the listener so that they understand it, what they will find is their decision now must be made. Do I adapt my life to what God said or do I reject what God says and keep living my life? And if you do that, you will find that you are joyless, but the joy of the Lord is your strength. What we're driving at is the preeminence of God's word leads to some biblical insight which pushes us to some biblical conviction, which actually ends in joy. Now, this is such an interesting thing. Look at verse 13. And on the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers and all the people, the priests and the Levites, and Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. What that simply communicates is they're back for more. Now, verse 14. And they found written in the law, that's a beautiful phrase, which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month. Now, hold on a second. Don't get lost in some of this Old Testament imagery. Hold on. But here's what I want you to notice. When we were reading back in verse 2, Nehemiah sets the date for us. And he says, we all gathered to hear this upon the first day of the seventh month. So on the first day of the seventh month, everybody is gathered together and they're listening to the law of God and they're being taught the law of God and they're weeping over their shortcoming and they really want to know what God wants. And I love the phrase of verse 14. And while they're listening and while they're being taught, they found something. They unearthed something. They unpacked something. And what they unearthed in their reading was that God had an expectation that during the seventh month, they would observe the Feast of Tabernacles. Now you have to be in their moment. Hold on a second. This says in the seventh month, we're supposed to observe the Feast of Booths. Now here, you would be like me. So what is the Feast of Booths? We're supposed to be doing this Somebody tell us what it is that we're supposed to be doing. And the Feast of Tabernacles, God had established so that for about a week, the children of Israel would leave their dwellings and they would go live in little shacks, booths, shanties down on the street. And they would dwell in there and it was a reminder to them of what God had done when they left Egypt and they went through the wilderness living in temporary dwellings. They were always supposed to stop and remember what it is that God did for them. And they would do that in celebration of the harvest so that they would also be reminded that whatever we have is because God is good and God has provided. It's not because of our cunning and our skill. And all of these people are reading this and they look up at Ezra and they look at the Levites and they say, hold on, we unearthed something. We found something. In the seventh month, we're supposed to observe the Feast of the Tabernacles. Help us to understand what it is that we're supposed to be doing. And they would help them to understand and they would read it distinctly and they would give them the sense and they would help them to understand. And here's something so incredible. The people altered their behavior and altered their schedule in accordance with what had been communicated. And amazingly, this group of people who are in a city with no houses and perhaps should have been building their permanent dwellings call a time out and observe the Feast of Tabernacle and the Feast of Booths because that's what God said they were supposed to do in the seventh month. 
And you know what? You might think, well, how dumb was that? I bet they didn't get their houses built. They did. Because as I referenced, 400 years from now, Jesus is going to triumphantly enter the city of Jerusalem, which has hundreds of thousands of people gathered for the week of Passover. They did it. They reestablished it. The walls and the gates were secure and the city will be built and the city will be repopulated. And for a moment in time, there was an outbreak of revival and there was the presence of joy, not because they completed their permanent dwelling and had everything that they wanted, not because they were living in comfort and luxury, but for a moment in time, the preeminence of God word led to some biblical insight which gave them some conviction which ended up in joy just because they obeyed what God wanted. How many of us miserably fail when we unearth something in the truth of God's word and refuse to adapt our lives to be in accordance with it? And in doing so, we think we're finding some shortcut to ultimate happiness, that we will actually arrive at the place where we have joy, and in doing so, we rob ourselves of any purpose and any fulfillment because we're wasting on our lives on things that just don't matter. How beautiful is it that a group of people completely ignorant to the law of God, who had a Babylonian mindset, who had lived in a different culture and are now in Jerusalem with Babylonian ears hearing for the first time the law of God communicated to them, broken down for them to where they understand it. And when they come across something that says we should change what we're doing, call a time out and adapt our lives, they did it. How simple is that? You call a time out from the world to come into a place like this where the word of God is communicated. And by the way, make that the bar for any church that you attend. Are you giving us the word of God? I don't care what you think. I don't care what your preferences are. Make sure you're telling me what God says. Let's work through the word of God. And in doing so, you begin to learn and you begin to mature and you begin to grow. But I'll be honest with you, you don't grow and you don't mature if you don't develop some biblical convictions based on what has been articulated and you won't find joy if you don't align your lives with what God communicates. Can you imagine that Nehemiah standing in front of them had to say, guys, stop crying. What we've just found is this is actually supposed to, according to the word of God, be a time of joy where we celebrate the harvest. Plenty of time for crying later. Let's not wait until next week. Let's not wait until next year. Let's just do what God said now. Now, here's how we would do it, right? All right, here's what we know. Next year, when the seventh month rolls around, we're going to stop and we're going to do the Feast of Tabernacles. We're going to stop. We'll get these houses built. We'll get a few things put away. And then we're going to get to it. They said, "Uh uh-uh, time out. That's what God wants. That's what God gets. That's what he said. That's what we'll do. Simple. Revival explodes on the scene just because people got back to God's word. Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. 
Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.